right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different. This is a special episode I've been wanting to do for a while now, talking about some recent movies that we think might be future cult classics. Joining me to talk about these movies is John Tolson, who has a new book out called 40 Cult Movies from Alice Sweet Alice to Zombies of Maratau. It is a really cool looking book with lots of great cult classics in it. And we're going to talk about some newer movies that maybe could, you know, make a future edition of this kind of a book. So we'll talk about some movies that we've covered here on Piecing It Together in these last five years, but also some other movies as well that maybe slip through the cracks and will eventually find their audiences Before we get to the conversation, I do want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And we got a lot of great listener suggestions in that group for this episode. I always look forward to all the conversations we have over there in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. So make sure you join if you're still on Facebook, if you're still on any of these social medias, make sure you're connected with me on all of them. Uh, aside from that, we also have a Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, which is another movie podcast that I produce, and from my music career. Lots of great stuff over there, so check it out, patreon.com slash Rosen. And with that said, let's get to our conversation. All right, I've been wanting to do this episode for a while now. We are going to talk about some recent movies that might end up being cult classics down the line. And joining me, we've got John Tolson, who just put out a new book called 40 Cult Movies from Alice Sweet Alice to Zombies of Moratau. I can't wait to see and read this book, and I'm very happy to have him here to talk about some cult movies. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, what a great idea for a podcast. The idea of taking new movies and seeing how uh, you know older movies have influenced them. I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I, I hope to get you on a regular episode one day. But this uh, has been something I've been putting off for a while now, honestly. Um, but I'm you know, happy it all kind of worked out that I have someone like you on the show to do this one with me because it's a perfect fit. Before we get to our picks and the topic at hand and all that stuff, uh, introduce yourself to my listeners so they know a little about you and about your book. Yeah, well, thanks for the introduction to my book, 40 Cult Movies. It's kind of compiled from a whole lifetime of cult movie watching uh, and 10 or 12 years of writing about these movies for magazines like Starburst and The Dark Side and Scream in the UK. Uh, And I'm just really, really pleased to be able to put this book out. Uh, And, you know, I think it's going to appeal to anyone who has an interest in cult movies. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like most people who want to dive deep into movies the way we do here on this podcast are probably pretty into cult movies. So I'm sure uh, any of my listeners will really enjoy the book. Um, But we will talk more about the book along the way. And also I have some questions about it at the end. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about five newer movies uh, from the last five years specifically that 
may eventually end up in a future edition as a possibility here of a book like mm. yours. Uh, movies that are recent that sometimes it's a little hard to say, you know, what is a cult movie? Where does the definition, uh, you know, start and end? And I, and I do want to talk about that a little bit before we get into our lists here about how to define these things. Um, because, you know, th there's a lot of unwritten rules to what a cult movie is. Do you have any, like, specifics? Like, I mean, obviously, it can't be too successful out of the gate. Um, you know, it, there's got to be a rabid fan base. I mean, what are some of the other uh, criteria that mm. I, you think go into a cult movie? Well, you kind of put your finger on it uh, in the sort of correspondence that we've had, you know, is the idea of a movie that uh, sort of gains a following over a period of years, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, you, you can, you know, some cult movies you know, like Planet of the Apes from, you know, the 60s. I mean, it, it was a box office uh, hit at the time, but it's just kind of had this tremendous legs and, and, and gained a following of specialists, I guess you'd call it. So, you know, you might sure. get a mainstream audience go to see that movie when it first came out, but it, it's kind of, uh, its appeal has narrowed, uh, you know, to, to a very kind of specialist audience. So I guess that's one kind of cult movie. Uh, but... Mm -hmm. um, I guess more kind of more popularly uh, as a definition of cult movies is the movie that sort of came out and didn't really click with a mainstream audience, but uh, uh, you know over a period of uh, years has sort of gained uh, traction uh, in different sort of uh, um, plat on different platforms. You know, so something like The Big Lebowski, for an example. You know, I mean, I remember going to see that when it first came out, and then the movie house was completely empty and, you know, I thought it was a good yeah. movie, you know, but um, uh, it's only kind of like uh, really gained a, a following sort of in the age of uh, DVD and so on. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just become so quotable and, uh, uh, and, you know, even the other day I was kind of walking around, uh, you know, the university campus and somebody had a Jackie Treehorn T-shirt on, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, I guess, you know, a, a movie like that, there's something quotable, eminently quotable about it. So when you, mm -hmm. you find yourself kind of like quoting lines from the movie in sort of part, you know, as part of your sort of everyday interaction with friends and so on, and that, that's really a kind of a sign of a cult movie. But as you say, Absolutely. you know, the it's very hard to really pin down uh, hard and fast definitions on uh, what ex exactly kind of makes a cult movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also part of the reason why I thought, uh, you know, in making our lists, we wouldn't really like kind of uh, talk beforehand about what we have on our lists because there's really, you know, no telling where our definitions exactly are going to land. Some things that we bring up might be, uh, you know, maybe a little more successful than others. Maybe they had cult followings right away. Maybe they grew over time. Some of them will be genuinely great movies that just didn't hit. Some of them will be maybe some so bad it's good kind mm. of movies. I mean, certainly yeah. those become cult favorites. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. But with that said, let's start getting into our lists here. Uh, and I'll also have some picks from our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, later on. But what do you mm. have for your first pick for a recent movie that might end up becoming a cult favorite? Well, you know, I approach this with a certain amount of trepidation because, uh, as you say, it's so hard to know. You know, with cult movies, you kind of like to let, let movies sit for a couple of years to kind of see whether they're going to gain a sort of... Uh, 
a sort of a, a you know a attraction as a cult movie and some some of the movies on my list have kind of got almost like cult stamped onto them in a very self-conscious way but you're wondering if they're yeah. actually going to end up being cult movies so yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what you know your response to this and my response, whether we're going to go, yeah, that's really a cult movie. Always kind of like, I don't see that at all. <laughs> that's gonna... mm-hmm. uh, so I'm going to throw one out. And uh, this was a movie I saw this year, came out this year. It's called They Clone Tyrone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, that, uh, you know, that's one of the ones that was kind of self-consciously cult. But I'm wondering, you know, it, I don't think it's the kind of movie that's, going to catch on with a mainstream audience but it it definitely had a lot of appeal to it i first became aware of this movie actually when i was in los angeles this summer and uh, you know just on the sunset strip they had huge billboards of this movie Mm -hmm. sort of like a triptych of billboards of they clone tyrone and it's uh it's kind of interesting that it's a a netflix movie a netflix produced movie uh and so are they Netflix kind of, you know, trying to get into that sort of market, you know. But when I watched the movie, I really enjoyed it. And I just thought it was, uh, you know, going back to the sort of theme of your podcast, really, that there was so many influences on that movie that just seemed to me to be uh, pretty conscious. You know, Uh, it it kind of harks back to the sort of black exploitation movies of the 70s, but it kind of comments on them. But it's also a movie that really wouldn't exist without the sort of Jordan Peele um, produced sort of black uh, horror movies of, mm. of recent years, like Nope, and so sure. on. So if anyone hasn't seen this movie, it's uh, it's uh, about a couple of guys uh, in the hood. Uh, one of them's a drug dealer, and he kind of gets shot in the course of his activities, but he kind of comes back to life and he's not quite sure why or how that's happened. Uh, and um, he kind of clubs together with uh, some of some, a, a, a couple of, a couple of the other guys and, and one of the, one of the prostitutes uh, in, in, in the ring there uh, and the pimp. And they discover that there's something nefarious going on, <laughs> uh, which involves uh, a science lab underground and, in fact, and cloning, as the title suggests. So it's a sure. it's very, very funny movie. It's got some great performances in it. Uh, and it's just kind of, but it's still, it's kind of the kind of movie that you could show to a mainstream audience and they just sit there and go, I don't get it. You know? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's why I thought it was, had a, you know, the potential as a cult movie. Sure. Yeah, great first pick. And I actually haven't seen it yet. I've been really wanting to get around to it, but I'm really glad you brought it up because I'm looking over my five picks here and I don't have any streaming movies on yeah. my list. And streaming is such an interesting animal because with a lot of these movies, things like They Clue and Tyrone, they come out and because of their release pattern, they don't really get that chance to breathe and to get like you know, a dedicated audience where they come out and like two, three weeks later, everyone's kind of stopped talking about them. And it, it makes it really difficult for these streaming movies to get those long-term audiences. So 
will something like this end up with that that cult following? It's so hard to say because of the streaming release, uh, you know, strategy. But this does feel like the kind of movie, though, that you know, right there baked in. It is such an interesting mix of of genres and of influences that uh, I could see that this could be one that you know people could gravitate to, you know, later on down the road. And uh, yeah, a lot of really talented people involved in it. And I'm mm. very excited to finally get around to that one. So uh, yeah, great first pick here. Um, I will go with my first pick. Yeah, go. So this is a movie called The Kid Detective, mm. which came out in 2020 at the end of 2020 when uh, nobody was uh, vaccinated yet. And so mm. it was during this very small window of time when dumping movies to theaters was a thing. Like, they would still release a movie in theaters, but no one could go. And so it just it wasn't able to be seen by anyone. And by the time it finally came out on rental at home, it was already, I, I think it came out in October of that year, of 2020. It didn't come out on rental until January or February of 2021. At that point, everyone was kind of done talking about 2020 movies, and it just got lost in the shuffle it is so funny. It uh, stars Adam Brody uh, as this guy who was the kid's adorable, uh, who was the town's adorable kid detective. And now he's all grown up and really not adjusted because of his early success. And now that he's an adult and a detective, uh, you know, still trying to have that job, he has to be faced with this like real serious grown up detective work. And he is just not ready for it whatsoever. And Adam Brody is so funny in this role. And it's one of these movies that as I continue recommending it to people, everyone who watches it just loves it. And it's something that just needs to find an audience. And it is going to take a long time, I feel like. But as more and more people watch it, you brought up The Big Lebowski earlier, which now is accepted as like, of course, everyone loves The Big Lebowski. But at the time, like you said, it, nobody really watched it. Um, I feel like The Kid Detective is exactly that kind of movie. And, and I would actually say that The Big Lebowski was a big influence on The Kid Detective. Mm -hmm. uh, other movies like The Long Goodbye, stuff like that, uh, these like kind of comedy mysteries. These kinds of movies do tend to have those long rollouts where people find out about them, mainly through word of mouth and stuff like that. Such a funny film and a big recommendation for me. Mm, sounds great and you know i think another element to the, the kind of uh of cult movies an element that maybe is not discussed as much is that that kind of sense of family viewing or the you know the, the a kind of a movie that you can sit down and you can watch you can maybe watch it with the kids maybe older mm. kids uh you know or you know couples can sit down and watch it it's kind of has the appeal and that sort of cross uh, appeal across the ages across the genders yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, the uh, has a, you know that element of comedy, you know, and uh, so many cult movies do have an element of comedy. You know yeah. what I mean? One of my favorite movies is Zoolander. Mm -hmm. You know, the zoo. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, for me, that's a cult movie. It's just one of those movies that every time it's on the TV, you just have to keep watching it. But, yeah, you know, I've kind of sat and watched that with like my nephew who loves it, and you know, you end up kind of. Uh, playing roles with them with, with 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 your friends with that you know quoting lines yeah you know and there are just so many great moments in that that, that you remember and the kid detective sounds to me i haven't seen it it's uh, you've whetted my appetite for it but it oh, sounds yeah. to me like it's got a similar kind of appeal a little dark for the kids though but yeah. um <laughs> yeah. yeah but 
Definitely, uh, definitely uh, something that you could watch with friends and uh, laugh so we, at just how much of a mess this guy is now that he's grown up. So, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah but uh, but yeah, definitely. And also another thing to that point is uh, a lot of, you know, cult movies in general, you kind of picture the midnight screenings or like, you know, uh, you know, anniversary screenings, things like that. Things where you get together with whether it's family or friends mm. or just like-minded people and watching them together. So I feel like probably all the movies on our lists here are going to be movies that you could picture that happening with. Uh, but yeah, let's go to your next pick. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a movie you definitely wouldn't want to sit down with, with your, with your kids to watch or, you know, with, <laughs> with your parents to watch, which is the greasy strangler. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. So this is a movie that, you know, it's kind of outrageous. You know, uh, but it's a very self-consciously cult movie. It's, uh, you know, it's clearly made by, you know, people who have watched a lot of cult movies uh, and, and and kind of set out to make one. Now, this is a movie, I, I saw it at a, movie, at a film festival. It was a horror movie festival, but it was, you know, people who really loved the, the, the weird and the wonderful. And mm -hmm. we just kind of laughed all the way through, you know. But then I watched it on my own on TV and I got a little bit wearisome the second time yeah. around. About halfway through, it kind of felt like it was a little bit repetitive. So again, this is a movie I don't know if it's gonna it's don't know if it's gonna actually turn into a cult movie, but it's a movie that thinks it's a cult movie, you mm -hmm. know? And thinking about sort of precedents for this movie, it kind of put me in the mind of some of those kind of self-consciously cult movies of the eighties. Uh, movies like Big Meat Eater. I don't know if you. I've never that seen, that. seen that one. Which is a, right off the title, I want to though. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is a weird sort of Canadian sort of uh, uh, sci-fi comedy musical. Mm. You know, uh, pretty gory, funny, yeah. cheesy. Yeah. And I think Greasy Strangler's kind of taken that approach, but just kind of ramped it right up. So it's pretty outrageous. Pretty you know, uh, you kind of laugh out loud, sort of, a, you know, sort of rude, you yeah. know, a bit, a bit kind of Farrelly brothers, uh, you know, on amphetamines sort of stuff, <laughs> sure. yeah. but also, you know, movies like from the eighties, like liquid sky, which is another very mm. self-consciously, uh, kind of cult movie. So I thought sure. it was the greasy strangler, whether it turns into a cult movie or whether it's, uh, you know, too self-conscious to be a cult movie because, again, you kind of wonder whether cult movies actually intended ever to be cult movies or they just kind of, uh, yeah, they kind of have that sort of forced onto them. Yeah, that is the that is the complicated nature of the conversation yeah. for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, certain things. I mean, on the cover of your book, you've got uh, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive or Brain Dead, you know, however you know you refer to it. But um, yeah. You know, talk about a movie that's like, you know, so over the top and knows like, oh, yeah, people are going to want to watch this at midnight for decades to come, you know. You just and kind so... of wonder what was going through his mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the best. You know. It, it, oh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of almost like you, you must have to hope that the people, you know, the audience is going to have the same sense of humor that you've sure. got, you know. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know what? Speaking of that kind of uh, self-knowing, almost self-parody, almost like, you know, it, it, it knows exactly what it's trying to do and whether or not that's going to work is always such a big gamble. Uh, I'm going with James Wan's 2021 horror film Malignant, uh, mm-hmm. which when that one came out, just absolutely blew me away. And I have talked on this podcast many times about how much I love this movie. So James Wan, of course, like being known for like these straightforward, like quote unquote, real horror movies. Um, but then all of a sudden making a billion dollars off of Aquaman somehow, like just this inexplicable, huge success and was basically given a blank check to do whatever he wants. And what he wanted was like a throwback to the gross out over the top, insane love letter to 80s horror movies basically Mm. and giallo and all that kind of stuff just insane gore and just a a big ridiculous uh twist that like takes it in a new direction that you would have never expected from the out you know the outset of the film and uh malignant is a movie that if you are on its level and understand what you know james wan was like aiming for with this is just so much fun and has been such a fun time. I, I don't know how active you are on the social medias, on the Twitters and all that stuff, but mm. has been so much fun with the memes and the jokes and like mm. everything around it, the whole culture around the movie. Uh, I also see people, we're, we're recording this right before Halloween. I've seen people dressing up as Gabriel for, for Halloween. Uh, you know, there's so much fun stuff around this movie. I feel like midnight screenings are a, a sure thing. I'm waiting for my first time, you know, to actually get to watch it with. Obviously, this was one that came out also right around the pandemic. And uh, my first time watching it was at home. I did get to see it in the theater once, and that was just an absolute blast. But I, I want to watch it with a big crowd one of these days. It would be so much fun. And yeah, Malignant, just an awesome movie. Are you a Malignant fan? You know, I'm going to have to make a, a confession here and say I've not seen that one. All right, all right. <laughs> it's just kind of. I look forward to hearing what you think of it I, when you get I, to it, because oh man. Well, you know, I, I, I do like James Wan. I like Lee Wanell as well. I don't know if he sure. was was he was he the writer on that? Uh, not on this one. It was actually Akila Cooper who went on to do Megan uh, right. next year. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, so, but, uh, yeah, she's great, too. Megan is awesome. Uh, that's another one that could be in this conversation, honestly. But, yeah, I definitely recommend Malignant. Uh, i I love to hear what you think of it when you get to it. Uh, but what do you got for your next pick? Well, I'm kind of going to go art, European art house now. So uh, there's a movie called Triangle of Sadness. Triangle oh, of yeah. Sadness, which won the Palm Door at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very strange film. Uh, it kind of starts off uh, with this young guy who's uh, he's a male model and he's, uh, he's going for a job, a modeling job. Uh, and it's kind of transpires that he has, has this relationship with a, with a, young, a young girl who's uh, uh, an influencer. And they're very materialistic as a, as a couple. And they're kind of together for the wrong reasons. She, you know, she kind of expects him to pay for everything. He doesn't have much money. She's a, what we call in uh, England a ligger. You know, she likes to get things for free. <laughs> uh, and they end up going on this super cruise with the super rich people. And up to this point, the movie seems almost like a kind of docudrama, you mm-hmm. know, about this young couple. It's almost kind of like in the kind of mumblecore 
sort of fashion. And then the movie switches tone to something completely different. Woody Harrelson appears yeah. as the as the captain of this ship uh, uh, who's completely drunk all the time. And he just shuts himself in the room. He just doesn't want to know. And uh, one night uh, he's persuaded to come out onto the captain's table uh, and something has happened in the kitchen and all of the food has become uh, sort of poisoned. So all of these super rich people end up with terrible uh, food poisoning. Uh, but things go from bad to worse. So the, mm. what you've got is these rich people vomiting everywhere, <laughs> you know, and just just trying to trying to uh, just kind of keep things together. But then the ship gets shipwrecked, and we end yeah. up on a desert island <laughs> with just this materialistic couple and some of the other ship's crew who uh, have been treated appallingly by the super rich, and the tables are turned. As oh, yeah. uh, the cleaning lady becomes the uh, the sort of top dog of the survivors, so what you've got is this film that sort of veers off uh, in so many different directions, and it completely yeah. kind of puts you off balance. You really don't know where this movie is going. Uh, but what it en- ends up being is a kind of a satire, a very dark satire about capitalism, sure. you know, about the rich and the poor, and you know how uh, 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 these uh, this kind of dynamic can be switched over when you kind of take people out of uh, civilization and dump them on a, on a desert island. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I love I love that movie. Uh, it is so nuts, and it just like you said, it goes from bad to worse, and then it goes yeah, yeah. to worse to worse to worse, and just keeps going from there. Um, part of me is wondering. Can a movie that was nominated for an Oscar qualify as a uh, a cult classic? But then also, yeah. part of me is also wondering though, like, does Ruben Oslin even like care or know why he got nominated for an Oscar for that movie? It's just it seems so out of left field, like that, like maybe that almost disqualifies that that point, you know? Well, though, you know, some so much of the mainstream press really panned it. Yeah, you know, and most people that actually sought it out were like, "What the hell is this movie? What the hell is it?" I just yeah. thought, thought it was a, a kind of movie that just upset people, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I guess some of the, you know, a lot of cult movies can m- maybe do that, you know. And yeah, that can be another definition, you know. It kind of uh, unsettles people, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of makes people kind of question uh, the way they live their lives. And, you know, there's that thing about art, you know, um, making people uncomfortable sure. uh, in its best form. Uh, but sure. mainly, mainly I kind of picked it because of that. I, I thought it was that, that was a really interesting kind of dynamic or contradiction that uh, it had won the Palme d'Or, nominated for an Oscar. But the mainstream press really were very uncomfortable with that movie. They just did you know? not know what to so, do with it. And, yeah. and I'm sure a lot of audiences were kind of like really uncomfortable with it, you know, yeah. because mainstream audiences really kind of get used to movies being a certain way, you yeah. know, and kind of knowing where the movie's going. Uh, and if and if they're kind of unbalanced uh, and those kind of preconceptions are sort of taken away from them, they get really... <laughs> 
angry sometimes. Sure. Yeah. That mo- that movie made my top 10 uh, that year. Yeah. And then when I was like kind of talking about it in my top 10, I was like, it's in my top 10, but I don't know if I could really recommend it to you, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you're yeah. probably not going to like it. So. Mm. <laughs> Well, uh, I will go with another one, uh, also from 2022, um, George Miller's 3000 years of longing, uh, mm. which is a movie I absolutely love. It stars Idris Elba as a djinn who is discovered by Tilda Swinton, who is a writer who is having trouble connecting with her own work and with the art of storytelling itself. And she gets whisked away and all of these stories that the djinn has that he hasn't been able to share with anybody for so long. And this movie, it was, I mean, there's no getting around it. It was a box office flop. It was a critical flop. Um, I think it suffered mainly from not being the next big action epic from the guy who made Mad Max Fury Road. Expectations Mm. can be a hell of a thing. And it's just, it's not the movie that people wanted it to be. And it came and people just didn't know what to do with it and just kind of shunned it away. This is a movie that as soon as I watched it, like the first thing I said when I did my review and our episode here on the show uh, is this is a movie that people are going to reclaim in Mm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's going to be like, you brought up Big Lebowski, it's going to be like Fight Club. Like, these movies that didn't do well, that nobody actually liked when they first came out, and then 10 years down the road, everyone's like, what are you talking about? That's a classic. Everybody loves that movie. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm convinced 3,000 Years of Longing is going to be one of those. There's no doubt that George Miller is an amazing filmmaker. Uh, I just think people didn't know what to make of it at the time, and that's a big thing with cult classics, is that people just didn't know what to make of them at the time. Mm. I think you're right. And I think there are certain directors that almost, you know, they, they just almost by default make cult movies because uh, they're always trying to do something different or they do something that, that, that as you say, uh, is kind of unexpected. I mean, Kubrick is a classic example. Sure. You know, almost every one of his movies was kind of got mixed reviews on its first release and uh, has kind of been, been reclaimed as a classic of its kind only afterwards. And yeah. certainly, I think that's the case of George Miller. I mean, I remember when Witches of Eastwick came out, you know, people <laughs> were kind of going, this isn't Mad Max, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a great film in, in, in its own right. And uh, uh, and I think even his, you know, even the Mad Max movies have just got cult stamped, up, stamped all over them. You know, yeah. I mean, because, you know, Miller's a, a director who's very uh, sort of cinema savvy, you know. Sure. Uh, the influences on uh, his movies from uh, from other movies, you know, the sort of Japanese samurai movies influence on uh, oh, yeah. Mad Max, uh, and you know, even his episode of the the Twilight Zone, Terror at Forty Thousand oh, yeah, Feet, right. or whatever it's called, you know, which is the best one in the in the in the film, has has really got like a kind of cult element uh, stamped into it. I guess Joe Dante's some somebody who's kind of similar. Sure. In a way, his movies don't always uh, click with an audience, but they they just have that sort of cult appeal. So, I mean, I would you know, I would agree completely, and I just think that Miller has just got that. He's a, he's a cult as a cult director. You know, there's no two yeah. ways about it. Absolutely, no two ways about it. What do you got for your next pick? Well, maybe another cult director actually, which is uh, Adam McKay, which is his uh, movie "Don't Look Up," okay. which is. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was a... Again, another movie that got a lot of criticism when mm-hmm. it came out uh, because of its satire, its political satire. Maybe came out at the wrong time. People were a little bit um, nervous about the world situation, the pandemic, and so on, and they maybe just didn't want. They were just didn't want to hear what Mackay had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'd kind of said a lot of acerbic stuff about the two thousand and eight crash, uh, the Big Short, the Big Short. Yeah, yeah, course, yeah, yeah. And uh, what I thought was interesting, and another reason why I brought it up for this podcast in particular, is because I. I don't think I've ever seen another movie that just almost kind of like rides on the back of a previous movie and completely subverts it. But I mean, when I was watching Don't Look Up, I just thought this is deep impact. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, uh, you know, but, you know, he's just ripping deep impact, the ideology of deep impact, ripping mm-hmm. it to pieces, you know, and it was Again, you know, uh, I talk to people who have watched that movie and say, terrible film. You know, this is not what a film is meant to be. You know, yeah. they didn't want to see a hero who goes to see the president and he's kind of left to sit in the waiting room and and the movie just stops. <laughs> you know, the yeah. movie just stops because that's not what happens in movies. You know, the president is meant to kind of come in and treat it all seriously. And, of course, and I just thought it was so clever the way it did that. But it was kind of like a slap in the face of the audience in terms of their genre, their genre expectations, the way they've sure. been, uh, the way they've been kind of uh, trained to watch movies like Deep Impact or sort of Armageddon, you know. And sure, like sure. And, yeah, uh, uh, it was like a mad, you know, mad magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like them making a movie about. Uh, what would happen if a meteor yeah and it's much more like real life than yeah 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 Uh, and and very brutal you know very brutal uh but i just thought it was you know had had the um potential to be become a cult because it was so badly received (laughs) yeah Yeah, i'll people may well turn around in five years and go you know he was right (laughs) we didn't want to admit it at the time but he was right (laughs) <laughs> it, it's possible I, I i admit i was one of those who did not like it very much although i will say yeah. that scene you brought up uh is my favorite part of the movie uh with, with him being stuck waiting in the waiting room uh yeah. but yeah i also I, I was not really a big fan of it but i i do agree though like for a movie like that that takes a big swing and doesn't necessarily connect that's exactly where you look for movies that will eventually find their audience so mm. uh and and I, I find a lot of people do like it it's just very split down the middle it's it's like a very love or split, hate kind of thing very polarizing which may yeah. again is maybe part of what a, a cult film is you know that sure. sort of po- polarizing effect on it i just yeah. kind of felt anxious for him as a person you know <laughs> sort of death threats that he would receive <laughs> after that you know uh, that's a lot crazy. of cult directors i think they would you know when they really kind of upset people you know with yeah. their films they get personally attacked you know i know that cronenberg got personally attacked in the 70s for his films oh, I uh, and, and i'm pretty sure that uh, adam mckay got 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 uh, kind of uh, a lot of abuse for that film yeah i, I always thought he's a very interesting director uh, i mean i love Step Brothers, which is another oh. <laughs> you know another great cult movie for me 
Yeah, even if I didn't like Don't Look Up, I will always love Adam McKay for all of those Anchorman and Step Brothers. And, yeah, you know, all exactly. those movies are. I mean, so how good. can you not like that? But it means, yeah. you know, if you just kind of see behind the scenes of him directing, he's such an interesting director. I mean, I've never seen a director who basically kind of ad libs lines in the moment for his actors to to deliver, you know, so they'll be playing the scene, he'll be watching the scene. And he'll say, say this, say this. Yeah. You know, which is extraordinary. He's kind of like, like a, a, improvising dialogue for the actors as the camera's rolling. You know, so I've never right. seen that before. Another director do that. I mean, that's Yeah, no. That, that takes a whole different set of skills. It's like a yeah. very, very hard thing to do, I would imagine. Mm. But uh, I, I will go uh, for my fourth pick with one that... Uh, speaking about polarizing, polarizing, it's not even because just everyone hated it except for me and like, I know like six other people who <laughs> like this movie. It's actually from this year. It's called Fool's Paradise. It's the mm -hmm. directorial debut from Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, this movie is a Hollywood satire. It's kind of a mix between being there and Bowfinger and uh, about this nonverbal oddball guy who kind of falls his way upward through the entertainment industry and everyone hated it. Uh, it did not make any money in the box office. Critics all just trashed it. Audiences who did seek it out did not like it. But the thing about this movie, and I, again, this is one that we covered here on the show, and I talk about this at length in the episode, but the, the thing that this movie reminded me of the most are those movies that me and my buddies back when I was in my 20s in college used to just you know get drunk or whatever and watch movies like Pootie Tang and mm. Death to Smoochie, Freddy Got mm -hmm. Fingered, Kung yeah. Pao. All these movies are cult classics now. Everybody thinks they're the funniest, most ridiculous, over-the-top movies ever. And they were just, it was just, you know, accepted that they were terrible at the time when they came out. And I, I really believe that this movie will find its audience of people who just like really irreverent, weird comedy, like stuff you just can't quite put a finger on. Um, th this movie does stuff that I don't know how he got away with doing it. I, it does stuff that is so far out there for a directorial debut and to get like all of these actors that he got for little cameos and stuff. It's so strange, so weird, which is perfect for Charlie Day. I mean, anyone who likes Charlie Day knows he should be making a really weird and strange movie for his mm. directorial debut. Um, I love this movie. It'll be in my top 10 when we get to the end of the year this year, and I'm sure I'll be the only critic with it on their top 10 list, but uh, mm. I'll wear that as a badge of honor until everybody reassesses it in 10 or 20 years. Mm. Well, I think you should be proud of yourself. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, when they kind of... I love that stuff that really goes out on the limb. You yeah. know, I really love that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'd rather watch the movie like that than watch a Wes Anderson movie, you mm. know, which to me is just a little bit too smug, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, that, for me, uh, you know, a good cult movie has an element of transgression to it. Sure. You know, and I think all of the movies we've talked about so far, they do have that kind of element of transgression. Sometimes, you know, they're hidden... It's hidden behind the comedy, you know, yeah. and, and the comedy kind of is sweetens the pill, as it as it were. Um, yeah. My fine, my but my fine, I'm going to go dark though with my final one because okay, you know, we're talking about you know how you how you perceive a movie, 
Uh, and sometimes with a cult movie, you kind of watch it and you really hate it. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or you feel really offended by it somehow. But gradually, mm-hmm. you kind of come to appreciate it. And I think if you're able to do that, then that's that's great for the movie. Uh, uh, and I have to say that this is a well, it's a couple of years old now, but it's the movie Possessor, which is the Brandon oh, Cronenberg. Brandon Cronenberg, yeah, yeah movie. You know, and, and when I watch the movie, I really kind of don't like that. When act when when you kind of present a certain realism, this kind of muddy realism of everything uh, is kind of like mumbled, you know, and and everything's like all the actors are asleep. Uh, yeah. I really kind of that really winds me up. And I really didn't like um, the killing of a sacred deer. There's <laughs> oh, <laughs> a film a lot of a people love. One. People, yeah. a lot of people really love that movie, and I was kind of like, I can't wait for this film to end. I really hate this kind of mm. mumbling, sort of flattened down uh, naturalism. Sure. But to combine that with this kind of gratuitous violence that that you have in possessor where it's just really kind of like sadistic <laughs> and, yeah and just trying to hurt you and that really offended me <laughs> and i hated the film absolutely hated the film but I, I i i had to kind of write something about it and, and i thought it was the only time I've ever had like a commission, and I thought, well, how, what the fuck am I going to do? Because <laughs> I really hate this film, you know. Sure. But I've got to find something positive to say because I really don't like criticism where you slag a film off just because you don't like it. I think you have sure. to have respect, respect for the artist, respect for the filmmaker. But when I kind of started to think about the movie and think about the themes, I really started to kind of appreciate the, the tradition that he was working within this idea of the dystopia. And just some of the kind of tropes that uh, Cronenberg was 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 using from the, you know all the way back to things like 1984, sure, uh, and the idea of brainwashing and totalitarianism and so on. And I thought that it became a really interesting and quite alarming film when uh, I kind of considered it from that point, from that perspective. So here's mm. a you know a cult movie that you just can't enjoy it. I mean, who the hell would want to watch that movie to enjoy it? But it's kind of a film that actually, uh, it feels like in some ways an important film, even though I yeah. still don't like the movie. Uh, <laughs> but it's never going to have a mainstream appeal. And uh, kind of just looking at IMDb and some of the chat forums and so on a lot of people really don't like it but again it's split a lot of people really rate it so it's a very polarizing film and for me personally it polarized me from going from hating it to kind of going actually i really respect it as a film Mm -hmm. you know so that was kind of an interesting experience as a film goer (laughs) i'm glad you brought that one up Uh, i actually almost included antiviral or infinity pool from brandon Cronenberg on my list Uh, i am a big fan of all three of these movies actually Mm. uh and uh, i think a couple of people i'll get to the uh recommendations from my group later but i think a couple of people mentioned possessors so um Mm. Mm-hmm. We got some fans in the group on that one, but yeah, uh, cool. yeah no, he, he's a very exciting filmmaker, uh, you know, definitely taking in the steps of, of his father, but um, mm. I will go with something that uh, I wanted to save this one for last because one thing that, you know, the first four I brought up, I genuinely think are all great. I, I love them. Uh, I love all four of those movies, but like I mentioned in the beginning, So Bad It's Good does 
come into play yeah. when it comes to cult classics. So I wanted to include a So Bad It's Good movie. And uh, this is one that I saw in 2020 uh, on Lifetime called Fatal Fashion. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also called Deadly Runway, and it's also called Design to Kill. It's got three different titles for whatever reason. This movie actually, after I loved it and was like screaming from the rooftops about how insanely bad this movie is. I mean, I'm talking like the room levels of bad. Mm. Uh, a year or two later, How Did This Get Made actually did an episode on it. So that just kind of goes to show like, oh, this this is starting to get seen for the absolute train wreck that it is and people that love to laugh about these, you know, awful, awful movies are, are finding it and starting to watch it. Um, this is one I would love to watch with a crowd because it's just so funny. Everything from the acting to the directing, the visual effects, um, the, the brushstrokes of the story is that it's about this, uh, I guess, mentally ill fashion photographer who, after trying to kill one of her, her models, ends up getting a, a student teacher job turns all of her students into models and then becomes obsessed with one of them and is going to, you know, try to kill that one now. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. It goes so far off the rails. It's so funny. The kills are terrible. The, the main actress is hilarious. The, the kid that she's trying to turn into a male model is just, uh, I don't even know what to say about him, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, this is one of those movies. I, I would love to see it like a mystery science theater kind of thing, mm -hmm. or, you know, some kind of a midnight movie kind of situation. Uh, and also shout out to a lifetime of Hallmark podcast who actually had me on to talk about this movie at length uh, a couple of years back. Um, because when I brought it to them, they just all were dying laughing when they watched it and they were like, Oh yeah, we got to do this one. So big recommendation. If you like so bad, it's good. Oh my God, it just does sound terrible. Well, you know, it's that thing about that kind of fine line between the sublime and the ridiculous. And I'm yeah. pretty sure it's every filmmaker's dread that they're going <laughs> to, you know, nobody sets out to make a movie that's that bad, you know. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's almost like every movie has the potential to be bad, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure it's every filmmaker's dread that they're going to churn out something like this, you know, and some directors come so close. I mean, you know, just hearing that synopsis, it made me think of Brian De Palma, you know. Well, definitely. <laughs> you know, and I kind of watched Dress to Kill a couple of months ago, and I thought, God, I don't remember it being this bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just something that's just kind of like a little bit, doesn't quite, it's just a bit cheesy, mm -hmm. you know, about it. Yeah, And, you know, I, mean, I think even, you know, Kubrick, you know, people say Kubrick was a perfectionist. He just wanted to try and get everything, make everything good. And and, and I just think actually what he was trying to do was, was trying to make sure it wasn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah, it's right. so easy to do. It must be so easy to do, you know, just, you know, that just that slip of judgment. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so um, that's one to avoid, except after a few beers, I guess. There you go. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I was actually watching Plan 9 from Outer Space last night. I watched know, it a few you. months ago. You did? Did yeah. you enjoy it? I actually did. I, I had such a good time yeah. with it. Yeah. Uh, that's cool because, you know, uh, you know, the first time I watched it, I got bored because it was so bad. You know, yeah. It was so bad. <laughs> Bad, but I watched it, started watching it. I thought, you know, this is a lot more enjoyable and entertaining than I re remembered it being. Yeah. And then you kind of start thinking, what on earth was going through this guy's mind? 
<laughs> you got to throw intention Why out the window. Why did he do that? Why yeah. did he do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> People must be so deluded. You know, this element of delusion just must set in. And I guess it's kind of like making a movie must be like being in love. You know, you're in this bubble. And you're in this bubble, and it's only when the bubble bursts that you realize you made this terrible mistake. Sure, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. The hardest things in the world to do, right? Yeah. But uh, I'm going to read some uh, pics from our Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. We got a bunch of them. I'll kind of uh, just speed through here, though. Let's see. William James wrote in uh, The Northman, uh, Robert Eggers, which absolutely, I don't know how that movie didn't do well. It's just, it, still kind mm. of boggles my mind steve rudensky mentioned he said hopefully the Karis hell movies which are movies that he made uh which right. hey if you you know if you want that kind of an audience i i don't blame you i mean anyone who's yeah, going to show up and watch the movies luck. you know uh, a couple of people paul hibbard and uh peter beta mentioned one cut of the dead which is uh, yeah. a japanese horror comedy that i know people mm -hmm. love i haven't seen it yet yeah, but i yeah. really need to Josh Hatcher mentioned Malignant, which I brought up. Fred Shakeshaft mentioned Cats, the 2019 adaptation oh, of Cats. Yeah, that's got to be a cult movie. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it's going to—it's it's a so bad it's good movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to watch that with a crowd one of these days for sure. Mm. Uh, Jeremy Warner mentioned Babylon, a, a huge movie from last year yeah. that just flopped hard. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, this is comes back because you know. I, you know, I was going to say uh, La La Land is a cult movie because, you know, it it's, got them. it's a musical. Winners. There's mm -hmm. so very few. It's kind of like New York, New York, but it's got elements of that. Whiplash was a great film, oh, yeah. I thought. Uh, but, you know, no director is immune from, from making something bad. Or, uh, but uh, I imagine that Babylon could easily become a cult I, classic. I think so. I feel like people are already starting to uh, reassess that yeah. one. Uh, Craig Cohen mentioned Under the Silver Lake, which is a movie I love that I agree with him completely. Uh, Peter Beta mentioned Halloween Ends, which we're recording this right after The Exorcist Believer is doing mm. very badly for David Gordon yeah, Green. Yeah. But it does seem like his Halloween movies are getting reassessed, and I think people are going to love them down the line. Uh, let's see. Joe Black mentioned The Beach Bum and Serenity. Uh, I love The Beach mm. Bum. Serenity, I, I kind of think, falls under that so bad it's good kind of category. That's a, that's yeah, a fun yeah. one. Uh, also, White Noise from uh, Noah Baumbach, which uh, I love that movie. I talk about Netflix streaming movies. That one did not do very well for them. Uh, Adam Wells mentioned Color Out of Space and Three from Hell. Mm -hmm. Rob Zombie yeah, is a yeah. guy who, you know, definitely you talked about yeah, yeah. cult built right in, you know, that's definitely yeah, one. Yeah, Richard Stanley. Sure, yeah. Richard Stanley. Let's see, Jennifer Howell mentioned Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright, another one that fits yeah, in that yeah. category. Edgar Wright is, a, again, you know, the guy uh, knows his cult movies mm -hmm. and he's very capable of making them. And I think all of his, you know, his Cornetto trilogy is definitely a got cult stamped all the way through like a stick of rock absolutely uh you brought up triangle of sadness but uh mm. george hannah wilson and adam wells both mentioned titan which was the mm -hmm. palm door winner of the year before and another yeah you know and another I movie like raw that. as well raw, yeah. raw was one of my favorite films of this year oh yeah great great movie 
Um, mm. Sean Malloy mentioned Upgrade. You brought up Lee Whannell earlier. Uh, yeah, Upgrade. Uh, yeah, that's one of the movies in my book, by the way, Upgrade. Is nice. Okay. Yeah, awesome. yeah. That's a great film. Great movie. Desiree Wolf mentioned Hereditary and Midsommar, another director that you could see all of their films becoming cult movies at some point. Louisa Moore mentioned Anna and the Apocalypse, which I actually don't know that movie. Yeah, that's a musical. Oh, yeah? <laughs> right on. Yeah, very big in the, in, the, in the horror movie festivals. Very enjoyable film. Okay, I'm going to have to check that one out. And then last one was uh, David Mikor mentioned Megan, which we talked about earlier, and Violent mm. Night. Which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that the Santa Claus action movie, which uh, that, that could be fun. I, I, I didn't mm-hmm. see that one, but I could see any kind of uh, holiday-based action or horror movie ending up with a good cult following. Yeah, so, man. so many Christmas horror movies. Made. Yeah, absolutely. So I want, to, uh, I want to talk about your book a little bit more before we wrap up here. I mean, my first question, you know, related to cult movies and horror movies specifically, it seems like a lot of your books, if not all, are horror or horror adjacent am i right about that yeah you know i mean i've always been into horror and i i guess uh the, the cult movie thing arose because i've been writing about movies uh for the last 10 or 12 years and i just always thought the movies i was writing about uh were pretty disparate bunch you know mm. but when i kind of gathered uh the, all the essays together and looked at them, I realized that they were all cult, cult movies. Sure. You know, uh, so I have this sort of curiosity, I think, about cult movies that, um, that you share from the sound of it. I'm sure, sure most of the listeners here share, and I think most of the readers share, you know, this. I get, the thing that really draws me to them, I guess, is just is that curiosity about, you know, how did such a strange film kind of come into existence? And and I just wanted to kind of uh, draw all of these writings together. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you, do you like, obviously you like a, a wide range of movies, but do you find horror to be the most fun to write about? Is that what kind of gravitates you back to the horror genre most of the time? I just think it's, you know, it's something I kind of grew up with. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a movie, a movie obsessed kid, Yeah, but I didn't really have access to movies because I, I this was the days before the internet before DVD even, but even before VHS, you know, when I was a young kid. And we didn't even, I grew up in a small town, I didn't even have a movie theater, mm-hmm. you know. So movies, I was obsessed with them, but I couldn't see them. Yeah. You know, so I read about them. And I used to uh, collect uh, movie magazines. And one of the movie magazines that I had the biggest collection of was a magazine called House of Hammer, mm. which was a kind of like a Hammer horror movie. But it also had weird movies in there like uh, The Redeemer, Son of Satan, and Alice, Sweet Alice, and mm. Blue Sunshine. So I was reading about these movies when I was seven, eight years old. Sure. You know, and so I guess it kind of just went into my blood as a, in, in a way, just the, the really wacky, offbeat kind of horror movies. And they were always my favorite kind of movies. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just the, the ones that were really kind of left field. Yeah. Do you do you think it's more fun when you have to seek these things out versus like, oh, here it is in the book. I guess I'll just go, you know, pop on, you know, Shutter or whatever service and it's just right there to watch available right away. Is it more fun when you actually have to like go seek the DVDs out and stuff? Yeah. I mean, I guess to, as a kid, there, there was a kind of a sense of something being forbidden about these films as well. Mm. You know, you couldn't see them. You weren't old enough. You couldn't gain access to them. And that made them even more attractive, made you want to see them even more. 
Yeah. And then I was very lucky because as a teenager, I kind of experienced the the, the dawn of the VCR, you know. Yeah. And in England, it was all they were all unrated films. They were all uncertificated films. And they're all films that were put out by very small distributors, indie distributors, because the majors, they didn't think home video had a future. They didn't think there was a market in it. Right. So it was all what we that became the video nasties. Yeah. You know, uh, so one one night I'd be watching The Last House on the on the left, and then the next the next night I'd be watching Flesh Gordon. Sure, you know the Cal Vista porno movies, <laughs> uh, just all sorts of kind of weird and Faces of Death. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> just really weird Mondo movies that I watched on kind of VHS. Uh, and so there was a sort of then, of course, the whole video nasty furora happened, and they be, and they became even more forbidden. Yeah, you know. And then I guess the next phase of my cult movie education, if you will, took place when I kind of moved to London uh, in my late teens, and I would. And back then we had repertory, what we call rep cinemas. Sure. You know, and they were kind of like the grind houses of the day. Mm-hmm. And so you go and see a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it will be paired with Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Sure. And, you know, I see movies like Tetsuo, all in these kind of rep cinemas, and often on very scratchy sort of 16 mil prints. And, and, and back then, a lot of the movies were still banned. Clockwork Orange was yeah. still unreleased, in, but kind of got to see that at the Scala um, uh, Cinema in King's Cross. And Texas Chainsaw on the scratchy 16 mil because that was banned. So I guess this kind of forbidden element, transgressive element, just made the movies all the more enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, and that really kind of cemented a fascination with cult movies for me. Yeah. It, it seems to me like horror has, you know, lately become the most dominant genre when it comes to like everything, at, both at the box office and on streaming and all that. Um, you know, of course, not counting superhero movies, although they seem to be on their way out a little bit. But uh, yeah. why do you think that is that that horror has been taking over so much lately? Well, I, you know, if anyone's kind of read my books, I, I kind of take what you could describe as a kind of a socio-political stance on it on mm-hmm. horror movies. So not just that horror movies reflect what's happening culturally, but you know, often the directors kind of key in in a very conscious way into world events but you're right i mean we're going through a cycle of horror that's the longest cycle in history you know we had a cycle in the 1930s that lasted from 1931 to 1936 and then there was a horror movies uh suffered under the Hayes code it came back in the 40s and that was the kind of golden age of horror lasted about six years and then the 70s kind of like the next golden age of horror lasted from about 68 or 72 to about 1980. So roughly about 10 years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's really the Blair Witch Project in 1999 really kicked off this current phase and horror movies have just not been uh, out of popularity ever since. Yeah. Then, I don't know, what do you think? I, I just guess, you know, the world is such a horrible place that actually horror movies kind of help you to make sense of it. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I also think it's a, <laughs> a genre that you can kind of mix a lot of different things. I mean, you, there's so many subgenres of horror, you know, whether it's, you know, comedy horror or slashers or, uh, you know, like like weird horror movies, you know, like there's so many yeah. different ways to, to utilize horror in storytelling. So I think it, it encompasses so much that that also, you know, helps. But yeah, you're right. You know, in thinking about it, I, I didn't really put 1999. I mean, 1999 is such like a major year in movies in general. Mm. But you're right. Since then, it's that's kind of where horror hasn't just, slowed just, down. It hasn't stopped. I think yeah. there's also the horror has always been like an, a, a good entry point into the industry for filmmakers. And never more than now when you have uh, digital production which is really kind of like uh, made it much more accessible for filmmakers uh, the marketing of the Blair Witch Project really kind of uh, in, has influenced the kind of marketing of movies since then Sure. Uh, uh, and especially for, for horror movies um, uh, horror movie festivals have, have really taken off in the last 20 years mm-hmm. again so you've got more windows of opportunity for distribution, exhibition for filmmakers. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, there's so many diverse voices that the genre allows because of all the subgenres and because, yeah. you know, you uh, people can bring their personalities and their concerns to the, the genre. So the horror has really kind of opened doors for more women filmmakers, more uh, indigenous filmmakers, uh, filmmakers from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, it allows people to talk about things in a kind of allegorical way that maybe they couldn't talk about in a kind of more mainstream uh, a genre. So I just think it just offers uh, a lot to to people who've, who've who've got something to say in films, and also you know uh, it, it takes a lot to make a good horror movie. You have to the crafts the craft that goes into it, uh, you know, in terms of the storytelling, the cinematography, editing. Uh, and all of that is very, very uh, challenging for a filmmaker, but very rewarding when you get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm a music composer uh, aside from this podcast, and so I do a lot of horror yeah, movies, yeah. and I so I see and you it. do horror movies. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, my last question for you uh, is: if there's anything you can talk about, are there any uh, other topics you're currently planning on writing about? Yeah, well, you know, I've kind of been moving away from just horror i mean horror is more kind of i guess my first love in a way and cult movies is, is my first love as well but you know i just like all cinema i've written a book about midnight cowboy and mm. uh, that's been out that came out this year i've got an idea in my mind about a book about the grotesque elements of violence in coppola's movies and the godfather and the influence of that on movies after that you know um like even spielberg's sort of munich there's just a uh, a, a kind of an approach that some filmmakers take uh, who seem to have a very kind of a very just don't have a personal dislike of violence and the way violence is normally kind of represented in cinema and they kind of uh, approached it in a different way hmm. and you know I'd really I really am influenced by Susan Sontag's writing in the in the 60s about disaster movies and the way that they they don't really tackle uh, the problems of society in in a, in a satisfactory way, and I'd kind of like to revisit her essay and bring it kind of like uh, apply it to some modern movies, like mm. for example, Don't Look Up and uh, movies that you know we have so many apocalypse movies now that I think that it, it will be interesting just to kind of analyze them using kind of Sontag's 
uh, original essay. You think Moonfall doesn't apply to uh, current society's uh, issues? Well, I haven't seen that movie. You're gonna have to. You have to the have moon to falls that. on the Earth. It literally falls. Yeah. yeah so. And how do we? And how do we deal with such a mishap? I, I can barely remember. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't give any answers to the problem. <laughs> yeah. But uh, maybe it'll be a cult classic one day. We'll see. Yeah, but... <laughs> maybe. I mean, it kind of sounds interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, John, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, tell people where they can find the book and where they can find you. Well, the book's on Amazon. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, kind of primarily at System Shocks or one word. And uh, yeah, please do look me up. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And I look forward to getting you on a uh, a regular episode one of these days. I'd love to have you well, on. That'd be great. Yeah, it's been it's been so much fun and thanks for thanks again for inviting me. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best pictures, some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984, and we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about some future cult classics. Thank you to John Tolson for joining me on that one. Make sure to go check out his book. There will be a link in the show notes. And, of course, if you're enjoying piecing it together, make sure you are subscribed. We've got a lot of episodes on the way, all kinds of uh, movies to cover, especially at the end of the year. It gets to be such a mad rush to cover as many things as we can, so make sure you are subscribed. And if you're enjoying the show, you could also drop us a little five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Spotify, wherever there's a five-star button. I'd appreciate it if you'd hit that button. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. I told you about the Patreon at the top of the show, so I'm not going to pester you with that again. But if you want to support the show in that way, I appreciate that as well. So check it out. Produced by David Rosen over on Patreon. I got a lot of new stuff planned for the Patreon in the coming months, so keep an eye out. Uh, we're going to close this out with a piece of music like I always do. And let's see, you know what? Uh, I just recently released a new horror film score album. And uh, it's for a film from a director named Chris Johnson, who I've worked with a bunch of times. And who knows, maybe one of Chris Johnson's films will end up being a cult classic one of these days. Perhaps even this one, Blind Malice, which is the score that I just released uh, two weeks ago at this point when this goes up. And I also just put out a music video from the soundtrack for the track Blind Malice Theme. It uses uh, clips from the film, which you'll be able to see soon, the film. But the music video you can watch now over on my YouTube channel. I'll play a piece from the Blind Malice score. Uh, I'm going to play a track called I Know What I Saw. And we'll close out the episode with that. You can check out the rest of the album over on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to music. And we will be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.